Well, I wasn't sure who was going to come today. I thought it might just be me and, and Jeff uh, worshiping this morning. Uh, if you were here last Sunday, uh, we talked a little bit about heaven, and I announced and I shared with you all that we were going to be talking about hell today. And I thought, well, either people are really curious and they're going to uh, show up, uh, or everybody's going to stay home because nobody wants to hear about it. So uh, there's, there's a good number of you here today, and, and welcome to you who are tuning in online. Um, uh, as Jeff said, uh, all summer long, we are in a sermon series called Good Question, looking at many of your questions uh, about the Bible, uh, about Jesus, about God, about the Christian faith, uh, and about the church. And this morning, uh, we are going to talk about hell. Um, and full disclosure, none of you asked about hell, uh, because I think nobody wants to know about hell, right? We are in great denial about hell. So this uh, question, uh, none of you asked, um, I, but I thought it was important for us to talk about hell, uh, because we talked a little bit about heaven, and I just don't think it would be responsible uh, for us just to talk about the happy things. I mean, we all want to talk about cotton candy, right? Um, but nobody wants to talk about broccoli. Um, but we're going to talk about broccoli today. I don't know if that metaphor works or not. But uh, uh, if you've got your Bibles, uh, we are in Matthew 25 this morning. Matthew 25. Uh, so I'm going to invite you to turn there. We're going to get there in a few moments. Um, uh, just uh, We are going to be all over Scripture today. We're not going to just be in Matthew 25. But if you take notes, uh, this would not be a bad morning uh, to take notes uh, and to be writing in your margins. Uh, and we're going to use Matthew 25 as our primary text. Uh, we're going to keep coming back to it. But we're going to look at uh, several passages throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament to really look at what uh, God's Word says to us uh, about hell. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, uh, God, for this beautiful morning, uh, for this, uh, the, the breeze that is blowing, an opportunity, God, to, to worship you, uh, to join your people uh, in your creation, in your sanctuary. God, as we uh, open our Bibles, open our hearts, our minds, our very lives, God, to experience you, uh, to be renewed, to be refreshed, to hear your truth, uh, to be challenged, um, and, and God, to be reminded that you are good and that you are faithful. Uh, and God, you have purpose and plan uh, for everything in this world uh, and for our lives. Uh, so may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable, for you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Some of you might know the name Joe McCarthy. Uh, Joe McCarthy was actually uh, a very famous uh, baseball coach. Uh, for, he coached from 1926 to 1950. Uh, he's one of the winningest coaches in baseball history. He coached the New York Yankees, uh, the Boston Red Sox, and the Chicago Cubs. Um, I don't think he did so well with the Cubs, but the Cubs didn't do so well for a long time as well. So, uh, But nonetheless, uh, he was one of the winningest coaches. Uh, in fact, Joe McCarthy, under his leadership, uh, won seven World Series titles. Uh, he really knew how to coach baseball teams. Um, um, and this is back in the ages, the days of uh, the classics, right? The really famous uh, classic baseball players. And, and he was kind of a personality, like so many coaches and players are today uh, and over the past 100 years. 
but sometime back, uh, Joe McCarthy uh, was sharing a story uh, about his experience, and it, it's just a story. So he shares with a group of people that one day uh, he died and went to heaven. So this is a Joe McCarthy story. And when he got to heaven, uh, he was really excited when he got there because there were some really good baseball players there. There was uh, Babe Ruth, Ty Cobb, Lou Gehrig. And Joe McCarthy thought, this is the dream team. This is awesome. I get to be in heaven and playing baseball with these really good baseball players. I get to coach the dream team. Well, one day, uh, Joe McCarthy got a call from hell, from the devil himself, challenging Joe McCarthy and the dream team to a baseball game. And Joe said, hey, no problem, but you're in trouble. I've got the dream team, all the great players. And the devil responded, it's all right. I got all the umpires. (laughs) You know, we hear stories of heaven or even talk about hell They often come in the form of a joke, right? Something kind of silly, something kind of light, something that, you know, we're just like, oh, hell, that place. Ha, 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 ha. We don't oftentimes take hell very seriously. That oftentimes is the way hell comes up in our everyday language. Other times when we talk about hell, we use it almost like as a filler word in our language, We say something like, what the hell are you doing? Of course, you could just say, what are you doing? But we just throw it in there, I guess, for added emphasis for a filler. Or maybe we'll say something like, man, it is hot as hell out here, right? We're, of course, trying to say is, it's hot out. Um, If we really think about it, it's not as hot as hell, but we just use that in our everyday language. Or maybe somebody will say, my foot hurts like hell. And I don't think your foot really does hurt like hell. But of course, you're trying to use that as an expletive or a filler or trying to a descriptor to say, my foot hurts. And we use this word hell in so many different ways. And I thought this morning we would talk about hell as the Bible talks about hell. Not just as a joke not just as a filler or an expletive, but what God's word has to say about hell. And of course, the interesting thing about hell is a lot of people don't believe in hell. I recently ran across a Pew survey where people across America were asked, do you believe in God? 87% of Americans said, yep, I believe in God. Next question, do you believe in heaven? 78% of people said, yep, I believe in heaven. Down a little bit. Do you believe in hell? 59% of Americans said, yep, I believe in hell. Which is kind of interesting. Because the source material for God, for heaven and hell, all come from the Bible. Which tells us, as Americans, we like to pick and choose what we believe in, right? Right? And here at Faith Lutheran Church, we said we're going to believe in all the Bible. And for us to believe in all the Bible, we got to study the Bible. We got to talk about the things that people don't want to talk about. And I've never preached a sermon on hell before. 
And all week long, I have not been looking forward to the sermon. I'm not going to lie. What in the world do I say to our folks here at Faith? So this is my very first fire and brimstone sermon, if you will. John's been asking me to preach this sermon since day one. And so today we're going to talk about the reality of hell and what the Bible says about hell, even though we don't want to talk about hell. And I thought a good place to start might be with a C.S. Lewis quote, because C.S. Lewis spoke a lot of truths about the Bible and about the study of all things relating to life and eternal life. C.S. Lewis once wrote this, There is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this, if it lay in my power. But it has the full support of Scripture, and especially of our own Lord's words. It always been held by Christendom, and it has the support of reason. Even reason says that there is hell. So if there is no hell, then the Bible is just a bunch of myths. If there is no hell, then Jesus was just a misguided person. If there is no hell, there would be no purpose for the crucifixion. Why would Jesus need to die on the cross to save us from hell? Right? I mean, even our own reason says there has to be a hell. If there's no hell, you have gathered here foolishly this morning. If there's no hell, you might as well sin all you can, right? Because sin is fun. Sin feels good. If there's no hell, just sin to your heart's desire. But if there's hell, then we should pay attention to what God, to what Jesus says about this place called hell. Now, in the Bible, if you were to just do a word search, uh, in the English Bible, if you were to do a word search uh, on the word hell, you would come up with 32 different times that this shows up. Um, For example, it comes up in Psalm uh, 917. The wicked shall return to hell, all the nations that forget God. 32 times this word hell shows up in the English language. However, when you look at, look at all the ways in which Scripture is referring to making reference to a place of hell, not using that word specifically, but talking about a place of eternal torment, a place of eternal uh, separation from God, then the word, the, the idea shows up 162 times. And the example I want to give to you is from the Old Testament book of Daniel, where Daniel is prophesying, looking forward to that day of the day of great tribulation. This is what Daniel writes. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. So Daniel uses this language of hell, shame and everlasting contempt. He doesn't speak the word uh, explicitly, uh, but he talks about uh, this idea of hell. Now the interesting thing is that of all the scripture, Genesis through Revelation, by far the person who talks about hell the most is... Come on, it's the answer that's always the answer in church. Jesus! 
Did you know that? That Jesus talks about hell more than anyone else in all of Scripture. If you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you will run into 70 different times, seven zero different times that Jesus talks about hell. Jesus actually talked about hell than he talked more about heaven. Isn't that interesting? And when Jesus spoke of hell, it was always in an inflammatory way. It was always in an offensive way. It was always kind of an in-your-face kind of way. Jesus spoke and preached lots of fire and brimstone. Jesus! Remember how we talk about God, the God of love? That's who preached more than anyone else about love and hell. You may be asking, wondering to yourself, well, that doesn't seem very loving. Why would he do that? And the best example I can think of is if Jesus knew about the reality of hell, and he does, why would he not warn us? I would say it would be very unloving for Jesus knows of a place of eternal torment and keeps his mouth absolutely shut. A couple years ago, my dad was diagnosed with bladder cancer. Can you imagine a doctor looking at a patient? The doctor knows that a patient has cancer and says, I don't want to hurt their feelings. So I'm just not going to tell them that they've got this diagnosis of cancer. But this doctor did the hard thing. He spoke truth to my dad and said, you've got cancer. You need treatment. So my dad had treatment for cancer. So when we talk about hell, I think it's important for all of us to remember That Jesus talked about hell, not because he's angry, not because he's mad, not because he wants you to go there, but because he loves you. He wants you to avoid hell at all cost. And so Jesus talks about hell a lot in scripture. In fact, in Matthew 28, Jesus says this, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul but rather fear him who was able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus offers this word of caution. So Matthew 25, we're going to look at this teaching where Jesus talks about hell, beginning with verse 31. This, these are Jesus' words speaking. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes, or clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, 
Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he said to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did do, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So as Jesus is teaching uh, this morning, uh, this lesson to the group of people that he was standing before, he was using a very familiar metaphor that everyone in his day understood. It was this metaphor, this idea of a shepherd. And everybody knew, ah, the shepherds, they're the ones that take care of the sheep and the goats and the animals. And everybody understood that sheep and goats are two different animals. They have two different temperaments. Sheep are docile. They're kind of clueless, right? They just kind of wander around. They're just like, duh. They don't really know much. They don't really do much. They're very docile. Goats, on the other hand, they're kind of aggressive. They have opinions about things, and you better be careful. And what the shepherd would do in Jesus' day is they would let the sheep and the goats kind of mix together. But twice a day, you would separate the sheep and the goats. Feeding time and nap time or night time. You would separate them because the goats would take care of the sheep. It would be over. You got to be really careful. And so when Jesus is talk about separating sheep and goats, everybody understood this metaphor. Other than the criders, probably the rest of us don't really get this, this metaphor so much. But this is why Jesus spoke. And so this morning, if you're taking notes in your Bibles in Matthew 25, you might just want to write down five ideas about hell. Five ideas about hell from Jesus. Not from the book of Revelation. Well, we're going to spend a little time in the book of Revelation. Not from some Old Testament prophets, although we're going to get there but from the mouth, from the lips, from the teachings of Jesus. Five ideas about hell from Jesus, supported by other parts of Scripture. Number one, hell is an actual place. Hell is an actual place. Jesus begins in verse 31, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Is Jesus actually going to come back? Yes, he will. He tells us this time and time again, that someday Jesus will come back. And the apostles talk about this, how the Son of Man, how Jesus, the Messiah, will come back someday. It will be an actual place, and there, this is an actual event, and it will take place in a very specific place. When the Son of Man comes in glory, it is a literal event taking place in a literal place. The New Testament talks about this idea of hell using several different words. 
in this particular passage, uh, he's talking about Hades. Maybe you've heard that word Hades before. It's a Greek word, and it simply means the grave. As I talked a little bit about last week, when we die, we go to heaven or we go to hell. Our, our body goes into the grave. Our physical body goes into the grave. But our soul, as Christ followers, goes into the immediate presence of Christ. And so this idea of Hades, it's, uh, everybody thought of it as the grave. The Old Testament Hebrew word for Hades is Sheol. Those of you who are reading through the Old Testament, you've, you've run across this a couple times, right? Same word as Hades, Sheol, uh, Hebrew and Greek. Another word uh, used for uh, hell in the Bible in the New Testament is Gehenna. Gehenna is used 12 times in the New Testament. And Gehenna is an actual place in, uh, in Israel today. If you were to go to Jerusalem today and kind of meander about uh, Jerusalem, you would look off to the southwest corner of Jerusalem and you would see a valley. It's known as the Valley of Gehinnon. And it's a Hebrew word. It's a place that what people understood, this is a garbage dump. In ancient times, this is where you got rid of the garbage, is in the Valley of Gehinnon. And so when you were burning, or when you would throw your stuff away, there was always a burn, uh, a smoldering fire going on in the valley. And this became an image, a metaphor for people. So when Jesus talks about, or others talk about, Gehenon, it's that place where that smells. It's a place that stinks. It's a place where they would take dead bodies of criminals and burn them. And so when Jesus and others talk about hell, Gehenna, everybody had this image in their minds and this smell. It was very sensory. And those of you who are reading through the Old Testament, you know that this idea shows up, this valley of Gehenna shows up. Remember when uh, Manasseh was uh, the king of Israel in the Old Testament? We just read this a week or so ago. And there was battles going on in that area. And what they would do when Manasseh was the king, remember he was one of the kings that did evil in the sight of God. And he actually sacrificed children to appease the gods. He was an evil man. He was a wicked man. And everybody knew this. When Jesus is teaching and talking about Gehenna, everybody knew about King Ahaz and King Manasseh and the evil that they did in Gehenna. It's an evil, terrible place the garbage gets dumped. And this became one of the metaphors that was used 12 times throughout the New Testament. The third word uh, in the Greek language uh, that's used to refer to hell is Tartarus. Tartarus. And it only shows up actually once in the New Testament in, in 2 Peter, where Peter is talking about a place where the fallen angels will go awaiting final judgment, destruction. And then the last uh, term that gets used uh, in the New Testament is a lake of fire. And we're going to get there in just a minute. Uh, it's in Revelation. But oftentimes this idea of a lake of fire becomes the place where uh, the devil and the demons are tormented forever and ever. And then we hear words and, and phrases like weeping and gnashing of teeth and outer darkness so there's lots of different language uh, used to describe this place of hell. And sometimes the biblical writers very explicitly use this word to talk about a very real place. So hell is an actual place. Number two, 
Hell is an intentional place. It has a very specific purpose. Look down at verse 41 with me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. In my Bible, I underline the word prepared. Hell was created for the devil and his angels. Hell was not originally created for people. It was created for those who had rebelled against God the devil, and his angels. If you look uh, to verse 34, I want to juxtapose that with verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, come to you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. So do you hear the juxtaposition, the contrast there? Hell was created for the devil and for the demons, all those who have rebelled against God. Heaven was created for you, for us. A very intentionally place that God has prepared. Heaven for people, hell for the devil, and for all the demons. Hell was not created for us originally. But Scripture tells us we know enough about God that God's not going to force any of us to go to a place that we don't want to be. God's not going to force you to go to heaven. God allows you, invites you to choose if you want to go with the demons, if you want to go to that place with Satan. One of the great theologians uh, of the church G.K. Chesterton wrote this. Hell is God's great compliment to the reality of human freedom and the dignity of human choice. God allows us to choose to go to hell. It's one of the great mysteries, I think. God loves you that much. He doesn't force you to go to heaven. Jesus said these words I want to share with you. John 14, you've heard this before. I am going to prepare a place for you. That's got its intention for you, for me, for all of humanity. But hell is a place that God does not force any of us to go. There's a great uh, depiction of this. Um, it, it's a courtroom scene. This whole idea of what hell looks like. And it's a courtroom scene uh, that the, uh, the, the disciple, uh, later the Apostle John, describes to us in the book of Revelation. So as I'm reading this, think of a courtroom scene. This comes from Revelation 20, this intentional place. John says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were opened. Another book was opened, which was the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead were in them. Each person was judged according what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found in the book of life 
was thrown into the lake of fire. So do you hear this courtroom scene? There's the judge, one who is perfect. And there is a prosecution, but there is no defense because the guilt is all but assured. No one is righteous in that final court scene. None are righteous. All have sinned and fallen short, except for those who've been welcomed into the family of God. So that's the scene. It's a courtroom scene. God is on the throne. There's no jury. There's no deliberation. It's guilty. And then there's justice that is served. And there's no parole. It's for all eternity. And John describes this to us. And it will be just. It will be perfectly just. The judge sits on the throne and judges with perfect justice. How do we know that the judge is just? Because it says that there are books right there. Lots and lots of books everywhere. And I don't, it doesn't say exactly what's in those books, but I can't help but wonder if it's, it's the books about every single detail of your life, every single thought of your life, every single sin of your life, every single good action of your life, every time you help someone, it's all recorded. Every single one of us is recorded in the book in heaven before the judge. And the judge looks through all these books about your life and my life, and the judge, the judge decides where we go. See, this is one of the great things I love about Scripture is that God is portrayed as a just God. So I think about, you know, this whole idea of, of heaven and hell. Some people are like, oh, there can't be hell. Everybody gets to go to heaven. Well, how would you feel if you show up at heaven and there's Adolf Hitler? That seems pretty unjust. What if you show up at, uh, in heaven and you see Paul Pot, Mao Zedong? I mean, you, you pick the, 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 the murderer, uh, the mass murderer of your choice. And everybody goes to heaven? I mean, where's the justice in that? Can you imagine getting to heaven and God looks at you and says, well, you know, everybody makes mistakes. That's not justice. Now, if any of those mass murderers confessed their sin and came before Jesus and repented, they'll be in heaven. Now, we don't know in the, in the history books that they've, any of them have done that. But even logical reasoning tells us that there has to be a hell and that there has to be a judgment. And God is the one, and all of our lives are filled with these books God's got a recording of your life. Now, I want to be really clear about this teaching because sometimes I hear there's misunderstanding about feeding people, about giving people clothes and visiting people. People will say to me, well, that sounds an awful like, like uh, works, uh, work salvation, right? Isn't that kind of, anybody else, you hear that? You think to yourself, that sounds like work salvation. I thought we were saved by grace through faith. Those are things that people are doing. So I want to be really clear here. What Jesus is talking about, what the, uh, the Apostle John is describing in the book of Revelation, that is not work salvation. 
feeding people, caring for people, clothing people, visiting them in prison, all the good things you do, those are listed as pieces of evidence that you have been saved, that you have trusted in Jesus and you have been saved, rescued by grace through faith. It's not about what you do, but when you become a Christ follower, those are the evidences in your life of the things that you don't, that you want to do. You are compelled to do because you've got this overwhelming sense of gratitude in your life. I want to help people because I have been blessed by God. Not I'm going to help these people so that I get to heaven, but I want to help people because I have been blessed. I have been rescued. So I want to make sure that we all understand that this courtroom scene, this is evidence that is brought forth. Remember that one time Jesus was teaching, he said, every idle word a person speaks will give account on the day of judgment. Jesus talks about this, that hell is not only an actual place, but that it is an intentional place. Number three, hell is a painful place. Hell is a painful place. We're going to go down to verse 41 here. I'm going to read it again. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Eternal fire. Verse 46. Then they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Fire and punishment. These are the words of Jesus. You ever talk to somebody and they're like, oh, I can't wait to get to hell. I'm going to be with all my friends. Hell is going to be a great big party. You ever heard anybody say that? Well, first of all, you need to get new friends. Second of all, there is nothing in the Bible that describes hell as a place, as a party. Fire and punishment. This is how Jesus, our loving Jesus, describes this place, hell, for all of eternity. Another time, Jesus was telling a story. This is recorded in Luke 16, another gospel. You're going to be familiar with this story too. Jesus is talking about uh, someone who died and is experiencing hell. Luke 16, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was uh, laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came for when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. Read heaven, folks. The rich man uh, also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away, with, uh, with Lazarus by his, by his side. So he called up to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip the, fing- uh, the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Does that sound like a party? This is how Jesus describes hell. Fire, torment, a- uh, agony. I don't love preaching this sermon this morning. (laughs) I'm just the mailman. And we all need to know the reality 
of hell and how it's described in the Bible, not in Hollywood, in the Bible, not in pop culture. Sometimes Jesus and others talk about weeping and gnashing of teeth. You ever heard that before? As you're, you're reading through the New Testament, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping we all get. We all understand that, right? Hell is a place where there's crying, there's sadness. But this whole idea of gnashing of teeth, what in the world is gnashing of teeth? Well, the best way I can describe it is every now and then uh, I get an inspiration to do a little project with a hammer and nails. Uh, anybody ever done something with hammer and nails? Anybody ever hit your thumb or your finger uh, with a hammer? Just me? A couple of you? You guys need to do, get out more, try some stuff, right? I mean, when you hit your, your thumb or your finger with a hammer, you're just like, oh, I just, my head, I start seeing stars. I close my eyes. I clench my teeth. I sometimes let out a word that I wish I didn't let out, but oftentimes it, it just hurts so much. I'm just like, oh, I'm clenching my teeth because it just hurts. This is gnashing of teeth. It's just this grinding. This is this, oh, that's the descriptor scripture that Jesus uses, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Other theologians, as they talk about this idea of gnashing of teeth, it's, it's not only this pain, this, oh, but it's also this idea of shaking your fist at God. There's this idea of not just pain, but also anger directed towards God. God, oh, gnashing of teeth from our loving Savior, who loves us and cares about us and talks about hell as an actual place, an intentional place, and a painful place. Number four, hell is an eternal place. Doesn't get any better, does it? It's just going on and on. Hell is an eternal place. Verse 46 then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. How long is hell, according to Jesus? Eternal. Forever. It goes on and on and on and on. It does not stop. In Revelation 20, there's this scene described by John. And the devil Revelation 20.10, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So according to John, how long is hell? Forever. Forever and ever and ever and ever. Tormented. Now, one of the things, again, that Hollywood, pop culture talks to us about the devil and hell. In this scene from Revelation 20, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur. Oftentimes, when we think about hell, we think about this whole idea of there's, there's uh, Satan and his minions in hell tormenting people, right? That's what we think. Satan is not in charge of hell. He got thrown in there. He is not the one in charge. He is the chief victim. He got sent there because he rebelled against God. Satan is not as powerful as we think. 
He's not in hell tormenting these people. He himself is being tormented along with all the demons and those who have chosen to go there. And it goes on and on and on for all of eternity. We talked about this last week, this idea of purgatory. Remember that? You probably heard of purgatory, those of you who uh, maybe grew up Catholic. Purgatory is not in the Bible. Purgatory is not in the Bible. Purgatory, the, I, the, theological, concept, the, the theological concept of purgatory is simply this, uh, that everybody goes to heaven, but on our way to heaven, we have a layover. You ever had a layover from hell? Right? That's, that's kind of what this is talking about, the whole idea of purgatory. We're all going to heaven. We're going to stop in purgatory, and we're going to have our sins burned off from us. Maybe for a couple decades, maybe for a hundred years, but eventually we're just going to get all fried and cross, uh, crispy, and all the, that stuff's going to get burned off till we all end up in heaven. That's the theological idea of purgatory. Only problem is it's not in the Bible. It's not in the Bible, folks. The idea of purgatory did not show up in the church until the 16th century at the Council of Trent. The theologians, the leaders of the church said, we just cannot stand this idea of hell. And so we're going to create this idea of purgatory. And they make this reference to a, a book that is not in the Bible, 2 Maccabees. And it's kind of this, this illusion, this illustration, that kind of sort of this idea where people get their sins burned off. It is not biblical. The idea of hell is eternal, and it comes from the words, the mouth of Jesus. Hell is an actual place. Hell is an intentional place. Hell is a painful place. Hell is an eternal place. Here's the good news. Hell is an avoidable place. Hell is an avoidable place. When Jesus is teaching about sheep and goats, it's in the context of salvation, rescue, by grace, through faith. And so it's all couched in this term. Jesus is warning them for sure. But what he's saying to them is, you don't have to go there. You don't have to go there. Hell is absolutely avoidable. Verse 34, I want to go back to there just to kind of lift something up to you. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. I not only underline this word prepared, I circled and highlighted the word inheritance. We all know what an inheritance is, right? Maybe uh, those of you who have received an inheritance, you got inheritance from your parents or from your grandparents, Right? You, you get something from your family uh, or a loved one, they give it to you. Nobody gets an inheritance because they earned it. You get an inheritance, or some of you are going to give an inheritance because it's a gift. By definition, an inheritance is a gift. And so as Jesus is talking about this inheritance to come into heaven, none of us receive it by works. This is why we know he's not talking about works, feeding, clothing, visiting people. Those are works. What Jesus is talking about is that it is a free gift. We receive heaven by grace as a gift. It's an inheritance. You understand what I'm saying? This is good news. We 
receive salvation, eternal life. We don't have to go to hell. We choose hell, but God says, I'm going to choose you to receive heaven for all of eternity. I think that's really, don't you think it's good to end on a high note? I think that's really good news. Heaven is absolutely what God has created for each one of us. And hell is absolutely avoidable. This is what it means to be a Jesus follower, is that we inherit this free gift, the presence of being with God forever. We don't earn it. We inherit it. It's given to us as a gift because we're part of the family. And you might be wondering, well, how do I get to be a part of the family? I, I want to be in that family, the family that gets to be with God and live forever. How do I get to be a part of that family? Well, there's a catch. Jesus tells us how we need, to, how we get to be a part of the family. One day he's having a conversation with a guy by the Nicodemus, John 3. You know this story. Jesus looks at the people. He looks at Nicodemus and says, unless you are born again, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. We have to be born again. It's, it's quite that simple. We surrender our lives to Jesus and say, God, I can't do this. I want to be with you. I deserve hell. I deserve death. I want to be with you. I want that free gift. That's it. That's how we get to be a part of the family of God. I once heard um, a, a, a guy describe uh, the, kind of a math equation, if you will. Die twice live once. Die once, live twice. Let me just say that again. Die once, live twice. Die twice, live once. Hopefully you wrote that down. I had it written down in my notes. It made more sense when I saw it on paper. And it simply means this. Die twice, live once. When you die to yourself, you live with Jesus. You die at the end of your life. You die somewhere in your life so that you can live once with Jesus for all eternity. Or You die twice. I'm getting a little mixed up on this. I think you know where I'm going with this. We have to die twice so we can live once. Does this make sense? Folks, we have to die to ourselves so that we can live with Jesus for all of eternity. And if we just die once at the end of our lives, we spend eternity Satan and his minions, eternal torment. Let me just close this way by saying this. Jesus wants to be with you for all of eternity. Jesus does not want you to be in hell. Jesus wants you to be in heaven with him, with God. He invites you, he invites all of us to live with him today and forever. But it's going to require us to die to ourselves in this world and in this life.
In John 10, Jesus says this, the thief comes only to kill, steal, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. Jesus wants you to have life and he wants you to have it abundantly, both in this world and in the world to come. The thief is going to lie to you over and over and over and look at you and say, you don't have to die to yourself. Just come be with me. And these are the consequences for those who choose an eternity in hell. But the good news is, folks, God has provided a way for you to get to spend eternity with him in heaven forever. I celebrate that and I praise God for that. And so as we think about this idea of eternity and where we're going, I want to invite you to bow your heads and come before the Lord and just reflect. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that you are a God who prepared this place called hell for all the evil of this world, all the evil that has existed since you created things. God, there is a place that none of us wants to go, but it's so real and it's described in your word. So God, help us to not make light of it, but to treat it seriously. God, we thank you that you have provided a way, an inheritance into the kingdom of God, a place where there'll be no sadness, no pain, no suffering, and certainly no death. A place, God, where we can live with you and experience joy and peace. God, help us as we journey through this life, preparing for the next life, to not be complacent about the realities of eternal life. But God, give us opportunities, give us moments to share this good news with others that they too can experience the inheritance that you offer to all people. And so God, thank you. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your warning. Thank you for your faithfulness. And thank you for Jesus. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.